I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas. Tonight, episode one of the 1998 Massey Lectures, Becoming Human, written and presented by the distinguished Canadian writer and social thinker Jean Vanier. The Massey Lectures are co-sponsored by CBC Radio and Massey College of the University of Toronto. Lecturers are invited to give a series of five talks on contemporary issues for a wide general audience. Since the lectures began in 1961, Massey lecturers have included such prominent thinkers as Claude Lévi-Strauss, Carlos Fuentes, Doris Lessing, Noam Chomsky and Northrop Frye. The book of the 1995 Massey Lectures, The Unconscious Civilization by John Ralston Saul, won the Governor-General's Prize for Nonfiction. This year's Massey lecturer, Jean Vanier, is the founder of L'Arche, the international organization famed for its innovative methods of working with mentally handicapped people. Jean Vanier is also a prolific writer, and in his many books he has developed the idea of what it means to be a good individual and what it means to live in harmony with the world and with God. In this year's Massey Lectures, Jean Vanier discusses the necessity of conceiving a new vision of humanity, a society in which the gifts of all, particularly those of the weak and the powerless, are a common heritage of equal value. To record these lectures, we travel to Jean Vanier's home in Trolley-Broy in the north of France, where he established the very first Lache community over 30 years ago. Because the lectures were recorded on location, from time to time you'll hear the sounds of real life, including birds and the occasional car. Tonight on Ideas, Loneliness. Episode 1 of Becoming Human, the 1998 Massey Lectures. And here is Jean Vanier. These talks are about the liberation of the human heart from the tentacles of chaos and loneliness and from those fears that provoke us to exclude and reject others. This is a liberation that opens us up. It leads us to the discovery of our common humanity. Through the progress of these talks, I shall speak of this discovery as a journey from loneliness to a love that transforms, as a love that grows in and through belonging, as a belonging that can include as well as exclude. This discovery of our common humanity liberates us from self-centered compulsions and inner hurts, a discovery which ultimately finds its fulfillment in the act of forgiveness and in loving those who are our enemies. It is the process of truly becoming human. These talks are not essentially about the formation and organization of society. They are not essentially political in scope. But since society is made up of individuals, as each one of us opens up to others and allows ourselves to be concerned by their condition, then the society in which we live must also change and become more open. We'll begin to work together for the common good. On the other hand, if we commit ourselves to the making of a society in which we are concerned only with our own rights, then that society must become more and more closed in on itself. Where we do not feel any responsibility towards others, 
there is no reason for us to work harmoniously towards a common good. Over the last 34 years, my experience has been primarily with men and women who have mental handicaps. In August 1964, I founded L'Arche, a network of small homes and communities where we live together, men and women with mental handicaps, and those who feel called to share their lives with them. Today, there are over 100 L'Arche communities in the world. Living in L'Arche, I have discovered a lot about loneliness, belonging, and the inner pain that springs from a sense of rejection. Community life with men and women who have mental handicaps has taught me a great deal about what it means to be human. To some, it may sound strange for me to say that it is the weak and those who have been excluded by society who have been my teachers. I hope that these talks can reveal a bit of what I have learnt, and am still learning, about being human and about helping others to discover our common humanity. I have called this first talk Loneliness. It was only in Lash that I really discovered what loneliness is. There were probably many times before Lash when I had felt lonely. But until then I had not seen loneliness as a painful reality. Maybe because I had succeeded in busying myself with doing things. Perhaps I had never named it or needed to give it a name. When I started welcoming those with mental handicaps into L'Arche, men and women from institutions, psychiatric hospitals, dysfunctional families, I began to realize how lonely they were. I discovered the terrible feeling of chaos that comes from extreme loneliness. A sense of loneliness can be covered up by the things we do as we seek recognition and success. This is surely what I did as a young adult. It's what we all do. We all have this drive to do things that will be seen by others as valuable, things which make us feel good about ourselves and give us a sense of being alive. We only become aware of this loneliness at times when we cannot perform or when imagination seems to fail us. Loneliness can appear as a faint dis-ease, an inner dissatisfaction, a restlessness in the heart. Loneliness comes at any time. Loneliness comes in times of sickness or when friends are absent. It comes during sleepless nights when the heart is heavy, during times of failure at work or in relationships. It comes when we lose trust in ourselves and in others. In old age, loneliness can rise up and threaten to overwhelm us. At such times, life can lose its meaning. Loneliness can feel like death. When people are physically well, performing creatively, successful in their lives, loneliness seems absent. But I believe that loneliness is something essential to human nature. It can only be covered over. It can never actually go away. Loneliness is part of being human because there is nothing in existence that can completely fulfill the needs of the human heart. Loneliness in one form is, in fact, essential to our humanity. Loneliness can become a source of creative energy. It can be the energy that drives us down new paths and to create new things, or to seek more truth and justice in the world. Artists, poets, mystics, prophets, those who do not seem to fit into the world or the ways of society are frequently lonely. They feel themselves to be different, 
dissatisfied with the status quo and with mediocrity, dissatisfied with the competitive world where so much energy goes into ephemeral things. Frequently it is the lonely man or woman who revolts against injustice and seeks new ways. It is as if a fire is burning within them, a fire that can only be fueled by loneliness. Loneliness is the fundamental force that urges mystics to a deeper union with God. For such people, loneliness has become intolerable. But instead of slipping into apathy or anger, they use the energy of loneliness to seek God. It pushes them forward towards the Absolute. An experience of God quenches this thirst for the Absolute, but at the same time wets it, because this is an experience that can never be total. By necessity, the knowledge of God is always partial. So loneliness opens mystics into a desire to love each and every human being as God loves them. Loneliness, then, can be a force for good. More frequently, however, loneliness shows other, less positive faces. It can be a source of apathy and depression, and even of a desire to die. It can foster inertia. It can push us into escapes and addictions in the need to forget our inner pain and emptiness. This is how loneliness most often shows itself in the elderly and those with handicaps. This is the loneliness we find in those who fall into depression, who have lost the sense of meaning in their lives, who are asking the question born of despair, so what is left? I once visited a mental hospital which was a kind of warehouse of human misery. Hundreds of children with severe handicaps were lying neglected on their cots. There was a deadly silence. Not one of them was crying. When they realized that nobody cares, that nobody will answer them, children no longer cry. It takes up too much energy. We cry out only when there is hope that someone may hear us. This is the loneliness born of the most complete and utter depression, from the bottom of the deepest pit in which the human soul can find itself. The loneliness that engenders depression manifests itself as chaos. There is confusion in the soul, and coming out of this confusion there is a desire for self-destruction, for death. So finally loneliness can become agony, a scream of pain. There is no light, no consolation, no touch of peace and of life. Such loneliness is the true meaning of chaos. Life no longer flows in recognizable patterns. For the person engulfed in this form of loneliness, there is only emptiness, anguish and inner agitation. There are no yearnings, no desires to be fulfilled. There is little desire to live, in fact. It is a life turned in upon itself. All order is gone, and those in this chaos are unable to relate or listen to others. Their lives seem to have no meaning. They live in complete confusion, closed up in themselves. Thus loneliness can become such uncontrolled anguish that one can easily slip into the chaos of madness. I met Eric for the first time in 1977. He was in the children's ward of the local psychiatric hospital, 40 kilometres from my home in Trolley, France. He was blind and deaf, as well as severely handicapped intellectually. 
He could neither walk nor eat by himself. He came to Lash at the age of sixteen, full of tremendous needs, anguish and fears. As he often sat on the ground, whenever he felt someone close by, he would stretch out his arms and try to clutch onto that person and to climb up their body. Once he had succeeded in getting someone to hold him, his actions would become wild. He would lose control, struggling to be held and at the same time jumping up and down. Holding Eric in one's arms under these conditions became intolerable for anyone, and inevitably it ended up in a contest, trying to get rid of him as he fought to remain held. He was a man who seemed to be living in immense anguish. Anguish is inner agitation, a chaotic, unfocused energy. Anguish breaks sleep and other patterns and brings us to a place of confusion. Here is the most profound loneliness. To be lonely is to feel unwanted and unloved, and therefore unlovable. Loneliness is a taste of death. No wonder some people who are desperately lonely lose themselves in mental illness or violence to forget the inner pain. Eric was a terribly lonely young man. He needed to be loved, but his needs were so great that no one person could fulfill them. It took a long time in Lash before he found some inner peace. Little by little, as he learned to trust those around him, he discovered he was loved. Our Lash communities are essentially places where we observe how deep healing comes about mainly when people feel loved when they have a sense of belonging, a place where they can serve and create, and most important, where they can love as well as be loved. I have come to learn that embodied in this practice is an important principle, the necessity of human commitment to the evolution of the new, the necessity of accepting constant movement as the price of our humanity and as the only road to becoming truly human. In Eric there was chaos and disorder, yet in the midst of the chaos there was a way out. Are not all our lives a movement from order to disorder, which in its turn evolves into a new order? The passage of life itself suggests a constantly recurring pattern from order to chaos, from chaos to order, again and again. Birth itself, adolescence, old age, are all passages that are filled with anguish. Finally, there is the ultimate corruption and disorder that death brings. Then, too, throughout our lives, there are all the disorders created by sickness, accidents, loss of work, loss of friends, all the crises which destroy our agendas and carefully laid plans. These disorders demand a gradual reordering of our lives. And the transition period such a crisis represents is not an easy one to live through. It is a time of loss before we have yet received something new. It is a time of grief. In human beings there is a constant tension between order and disorder, connectedness and loneliness, evolution and revolution, security and insecurity. Our universe is a constantly evolving one. The old order gives way to a new order, and this in turn crumbles when the next new order appears. It is no different in the individual life of each one of us, from birth to death. Change of one sort or another is the essence of life. 
so there will always be loneliness and insecurity in the face of change. When we refuse to accept the reality that loneliness and insecurity are a part of life, when we refuse to accept that these are the price of change, we close the door on many possibilities for ourselves. Our lives become lessened. We are less fully human. If we try to prevent or if we ignore the movement of life, we run the risk of falling into the inevitable depression that must accompany an impossible goal. Life is an evolving reality. Change is constant. When we try to prevent the forward movement of life, we may succeed for a while, but inevitably there comes an explosion. The groundswell of life's constant movement, constant change, is too great to resist. And so empires of ideas as well as empires of wealth and power come and go. To live well is to observe in today's apparent order the tiny anomalies that are the seeds of change, harbingers of the order of tomorrow. This means living in a state of a certain insecurity, in an anguish and loneliness which, at its best, can push us forth into the new. Too much security and the refusal to evolve, to embrace change, leads to a kind of death. Too much insecurity, however, can also mean death. To be human is to create sufficient order so that we can move on into insecurity and seeming disorder. In this way, we discover the new. Those who have the eyes to see this new order as it arises will often be perceived as too revolutionary, too modern, too liberal. Thus dictators everywhere have clamped down on movements for liberation. Those who lead are always so certain that anarchy will rise up if they do not govern with a firm hand. In reality, leaders are frightened of sharing or losing power. They are frightened of change. Those who see the coming new order will always be alone, persecuted. But how do we learn to read the signs of evolution and to see where it's going? We can only help the new to evolve if we are certain, clear principles. Here are five principles which have helped me. First, all humans are sacred, whatever their culture, race or religion, whatever their capacities or incapacity, and whatever their weakness or strength may be. Each of us has an instrument to bring to the vast orchestra of humanity, and each of us needs help to become all that we might be. Second, our world and our individual lives are in the process of evolution. This evolution is a part of life, and it's not always easy to determine the good and the bad in something that is evolving, how to maintain the old and prepare the way for the new. It is not a question of rejecting the past, but of letting the past flow into the present and letting this lead us towards the future. It is a question of loving all the essential values of the past and reflecting on how they are to be lived in the new. These essential values include openness, love, wholeness, unity, peace, and the human potential for healing and redemption. Most important, the necessity of forgiveness. So everything that permits and encourages the flow of life and growth is necessary. Third, maturity comes through working with others through dialogue, a sense of belonging, and a searching together. 
In order to evolve towards greater maturity and wholeness, we humans need a certain security. Only when we have this can we advance in insecurity towards the new. Fourth, human beings need to be encouraged to make choices, to become responsible for their own lives and for the lives of others. We need to be encouraged to evolve in order to become mature, breaking out of the shell of self-centeredness, which is as oppressive to others as it is to the self. In other words, we humans need to be rooted in a good earth in order to produce good fruit. But for this, we need to freely risk life in order to give of ourselves. Fifth, in order to make such choices, we need to reflect and to seek truth and meaning together. The principle of reality is the first principle of truth. To be human means to remain connected to our humanness and to the reality of the universe. It means to abandon the loneliness of being closed up in illusions, dreams and ideologies, frightened of reality, and to choose to move towards connectedness. To be human is to accept ourselves as we are, with our own history, and to accept others as they are. To be human means to accept history as it is, and to work so that we evolve without fear towards greater openness, greater understanding, and a greater love of others. To be human is not to be crushed by reality, or to be angry about it, or to try to hammer it into what we think it to be, but to commit ourselves as individuals and as a species to an evolution that will be for the good of all. Each one of us needs to work at searching for truth, not being afraid of it. We need to work at living in truth, because the truth sets us free. Perhaps this search for truth is a process of letting ourselves be enfolded in truth, rather than the more common belief that the truth is an object, something we can possess, something we can use against others. The truth will set us free only if we let it penetrate into our hearts, which means that the veil that separates our heads from our hearts is being torn. The objective is not only to let the head penetrate the heart, but to love truth also. True religion and morality liberate us and give us a deep respect and compassion for others. This process of searching for truth demands an openness. It demands an evolution in thought, not only as individuals and entire societies, but as the whole world itself evolves and we discover new intimations of what is. There are unchanging principles which might govern our actions, but there is also the need to integrate our experience into these principles and to let these principles be enlightened by our experience. This evolution in thought can mean searching, grasping in the dark, deepening our thought, rethinking answers, formulating them in new words and new ways. Philosophy, anthropology, theology, all those sciences which tell us what it means to be human can be dangerous if they are thought of as ideologies which dictate our reality. Instead, they need to be understood as tools by which we humbly listen to and marvel at reality. Part of what this means is that we do not return to the past and try to clutch onto it, but advance with the present and launch out into the future, trying to understand each other 
and what it means to be human, trying to understand what is happening in the world in order to become more fully human and to work for peace and unity. It is only as we begin to integrate such a sense of reality more fully into our being and as we thirst for that which gives meaning to our reality that we discover the fundamental meaning of loneliness, a cry for more love, a cry to be even more enfolded in truth, possessed by God, a cry which will bring a new wholeness to humanity. I'm Lister Sinclair. This is Ideas on CBC Radio 1. Tonight, you're listening to Episode 1 of the 1998 Massey Lectures, Becoming Human, presented by the distinguished writer and social thinker Jean Vanier. The continual human search for meaning and order and for an antidote to loneliness leads us to the necessity of community. There are some families, tribes and groups that are beautifully ordered, where an imposed order seems to be a successful resolution to the chaos of life, where each person feels safe because they are connected to others. This seeming order and safety, however, can be a danger. In such a community, individuals can be stifled, individual life can be prevented from evolving. In the villages of African countries I have visited, people are rarely lonely. To begin with, they live very close together. Children often sleep in the same room. Courtyards are filled with aunts, uncles, cousins, relatives of every sort. All are bonded together under the often strict and powerful guidance of a chief or group of elders. In such a milieu, everyone tends to toe the line. There is little place for individuality or creative initiative. Senior members of the community even take over such essentially personal functions as finding work and arranging marriages. Belonging, in such a context, gives each member of the family a sense of security. There can be something beautifully human in such villages. Men have their roles, the women theirs. However, the price that is paid for such order and security is precisely the great difficulty for each one of freeing themselves from the power of the group to liberate their true, deepest self searching for the new. Here we're touching on a real paradox. As humans, we crave belonging. We need the connectedness to others that brings security. But this connectedness can prevent the natural movement and evolution of life. It can also get in the way of creativity and stifle the natural loneliness which pushes us to discover something new, pushes us in the direction of a greater closeness to God. This loneliness is the loneliness of the individual who steps out from the group, who takes a chance on what can be discovered and done outside of the norm. So here is the paradox. As humans, we are caught between competing drives, the drive to belong, to fit in and to be part of something bigger than ourselves and the drive to let our deepest self rise up, to walk alone, to refuse the accepted and the comfortable. It is in the group that we discover what it is we have in common. It is as individuals that we discover God. How we balance these two drives is forever the mark of our humanity. Where do these competing drives, the feeling of loneliness and the search for community, come from? We were all conceived and born in littleness and weakness. 
we could do nothing by ourselves. We depended totally on our parents for food and for protection. Our greatest need was for their enfolding and protective love. Children cannot live and grow and find their personality without that love. For a human being, love is as vital as food. What happens, however, if children do not feel wanted or loved? Because of their fragility and helplessness, they have to find ways and means to defend themselves. When they are loved, they live off trust. Their bodies and hearts open up to those who respect and love them, who understand and listen to them. What is deepest in the child begins to blossom. But children are so sensitive, there is nothing to compare with the terrible loneliness of the child. Unable to live independently, a child's loneliness generates fear, anguish, a sense of guilt. And when they are wounded in their hearts, children learn to protect themselves by hiding behind barriers. The lonely child is the child who feels no commonality with adults. The lonely child is also the one who has lost trust in himself, the one who is confused and feels misunderstood. The lonely child is the one who cannot name the pain and the lonely child is in each one of us as adults, hidden behind the walls we have created in order to survive. I am speaking, of course, of only one aspect of loneliness, the aspect that can destroy some part of us and not the loneliness that creates. Where might we begin to find the ways to help us overcome the terrible legacy that destructive loneliness leaves us? Well, I can only speak from my own experience, so let me talk about Claudia. In 1975, we welcomed Claudia into our Lash community in Suyapa, a slum area of Tegucigalpa, Honduras. She was seven years old and had spent practically her whole life in a rather dismal, overcrowded asylum. Claudia was blind, fearful of relationships, filled with inner pain and anguish. Technically speaking, she was autistic. She lived a horrible form of madness, which cannot be idealized or seen as a gateway to another world. Her anguish seemed to increase terribly when she arrived in the community, probably because in leaving the asylum she lost her reference points as well as a structure of existence that had given her a certain security. Everything and everyone frightened her. She screamed day and night and smeared excrement on the walls. She appeared to be totally mad. Overwhelmed by insecurity, her personality seemed to be disintegrating. Claudia was in a state of chaos when she arrived in our community. In Lash, we have learned from our own experience of healing, as well as through the help of psychiatrists and psychologists, that chaos or madness has a meaning. It comes from somewhere. It is comprehensible. Madness is an immense cry, a sickness. It is a way of escaping the world of pain because the stress of being in the world is too great. Madness is a relief from anguish. But there is an order in the disorder which can permit healing, if only we can find it. Twenty years after she first arrived at Suyapa, I visited the community and met Claudia again. I found her quite well. She was by then a 28-year-old woman, still blind and autistic, but at peace and able to do many things for the community. She still liked being alone, but she was clearly not a lonely person. She would often sing to herself, and there was a constant smile on her face. 
It was loneliness and insecurity that had brought Claudia to the chaos of madness. It was community, love and friendship that finally brought her inner peace. This movement from chaos to inner peace, from self-hate to self-trust, began when it was revealed to Claudia that she was loved. There are for me seven aspects of love that seem necessary for the transformation of the heart in those who are profoundly lonely. They are to reveal, to understand, to communicate, to celebrate, to empower, to be in communion with another, and finally, to forgive. The first, the key aspect, is that of revelation. The mother and father reveal to their children that they have value and beauty. The therapist and the others who worked with Claudia helped to reveal her value and beauty. To reveal someone's beauty is to reveal their value through the act of giving them time, attention, a tenderness. To love is not just to do something for them, but to reveal to them their own uniqueness, to tell them that they are special and worthy of attention. We reveal this through the way in which we do things. This is a revelation expressed through an open and gentle presence, in the way we look at and listen, the way we speak and care for someone. Gestures can be filled with respect, and this respect reveals to someone their worth, even though that worth be hidden under the ruins of anger, hatred, or madness. This revelation of value, the revelation that heals, takes time. In the case of Claudia, seven childhood years of pain in an asylum, seven years of loneliness, lack of love, and feelings of worthlessness had taken their toll. Claudia had developed survival tactics, habits founded upon her belief in her own unworthiness. Her madness and screaming were reasonable responses to the world. Nobody wanted her. It took time for the transformation to take place from a hatred of herself to a trust in herself. It is easy to trust in the beauty of a little child, but how to trust in the hidden beauty of Claudia when she appeared so mad? This is the fundamental question, how to trust that she has a heart and that she can little by little receive love, be transformed by love, and then give love. The belief in the hidden inner beauty of each and every human being is at the heart of L'Arche, at the heart of all true education, and at the heart of being human. As soon as we start selecting people, instead of welcoming them as they are, with their sometimes hidden beauty, as well as their more frequently visible weaknesses, then we are killing life, not fostering it. And it is precisely as we reveal to people their value, that their hidden value is enabled to rise to the surface of their being, where it may be more clearly seen. But to love also means to understand, and this is the second aspect of love. Claudia needed to be understood. If she was not understood, how could she be helped to find inner peace and growth? Nadine, the community leader in Suyapa, needed help from the psychiatrists and the psychologists in caring for Claudia. In this case, she found out that Claudia needed to find security through the regular structures of the day. The rhythm of daily activities, meals, work, leisure time, bring security if there is regularity to them. 
Claudia began to know how the day at Suyapa would evolve and how she should respond appropriately in each situation. She gradually started to learn what to expect, as well as what was expected of her. What was important here was the creation of a relationship of trust founded upon an understanding of Claudia's needs. Communication is at the heart of love. So the third aspect of love is communication. Just as we need to be understood, we also need to understand ourselves, and for that we usually need to be helped. Children who are quite disturbed need to have someone help them name where their disturbance is coming from. When nothing is named, confusion grows, and with it, anguish. To name something is to bring it out of chaos, out of confusion, and to render it intelligible and understandable. It is a terrible thing when certain realities, such as death, are never talked about and remain hidden. When such realities are not named, they haunt us. They become like terrifying ghosts, horrible spectres for the mind. For example, for people of my grandmother's generation, it was forbidden to speak of sex, so sex, because it was unnamed, became a power that controlled. Children quickly discover that there is this thing called truth. They are not living in a world that is merely hypocritical or filled with lies and pretense. So parents who admit to their children that they have been unjustly angry and ask for forgiveness are naming something. They are admitting that they are not perfect. Words and life can come together. The word can indeed become flesh. I have learnt that the process of teaching and learning, of communication, goes in two directions at all times. The one who is healed and the one who is healing constantly change roles. As we begin to understand ourselves, we begin to understand others. It is part of the process of moving from idealism to reality, from the sky to the earth. We do not have to be perfect or even to deny our emotions. And here to me is another profound truth. Understanding, as well as truth, comes not only from the intellect but from our bodies. When we begin to listen to our bodies, we begin to listen to reality and to our own experience. We begin to trust our intuitions, our hearts. The truth is also in the earth of our bodies. So it is a question of moving from theories we have learnt to listening to the reality that is in and around us. Truth flows from the earth. This is not to deny the truth that flows from teachers, from books, from tradition, from our ancestors and from a religious faith. But the two must come together. Truth from the sky must be confirmed and strengthened by truth that comes from the earth. We must learn to listen. The fourth aspect of love is celebration. It is not enough to reveal to people their value, to understand and care for them. To love people is also to celebrate them. So often the Claudias of the world are seen only as problems, needing to be attended to by professionals. The Claudias also need laughter and play. They need people who will celebrate life with them and help manifest their joy. It was this joy and the gentle presence of Nadine and the others in Suyapa that gradually weakened Claudia's great walls of defence. Little by little, she began to trust that she was not awful, but capable of loving and being loved. 
So many people with disabilities are seen by their parents and families only as a tragedy. They are surrounded by sad faces, sometimes full of pity, sometimes tears. But every child, every person needs to know that they are a source of joy. Every child, every person needs to be celebrated. Only when all of our weaknesses are accepted as part of our humanity can our negative, broken self-image be transformed. The fifth aspect of love is empowerment. It is not just a question of doing things for others, but of helping them to do things for themselves, helping them to discover the meaning of their lives. To love means to empower. Claudia had to learn gradually that she was responsible for her own body, for her own life, that she had authority over her actions, and that she could make choices, however small. But with this sense of responsibility for herself, also came the necessity of learning how to respect others. Empowerment meant that Claudia had to learn how to observe the structures of the community and make efforts to love others. Claudia could only begin to grow as she became more conscious of the mutual belonging, the mutual dependence that was at the heart of the Suyapa community, itself a little mirror of the bigger world. And so it was that Claudia gradually began to discover that it was not only Nadine who was bringing life to her, but that she was also giving life to Nadine. So we discover how love flows into communion, the sixth aspect of love. Communion is mutual trust, mutual belonging. It is a to and fro of love where each one both gives and receives. Communion is not a fixed state. It is an ever-growing and deepening reality that can turn sour if one person tries to possess the other. Communion is mutual vulnerability and openness to the other. It is a liberation for both indeed, where I am allowed to be myself, where each one of us is called to grow in greater openness to others and to the universe. Trust is a beautiful form of love. When we are generous, we give money, time, knowledge. In trust, we give ourselves. But we can only give of ourselves if we are sure we will be received by someone. At what moment is trust born? There was a secret moment known only to Claudia when she recognized that she was loved. Realizing that she was loved, Claudia entered into a relationship of belonging. The opening of Claudia's heart brought about a new opening in Nadine's heart, bringing her out of her own loneliness. This moment was the birth of communion between them. This communion, the to and fro of love, is at the heart of the mystery of our humanity. It means accepting the presence of another inside oneself, as well as accepting the reciprocal call to enter into another. Communion implies a constant struggle against all the powers of fear and selfishness in us, as well as the seemingly resilient human need to possess another person. To a certain extent, we lose control over our own lives when we are open to others. Communion of hearts is a beautiful but also a dangerous thing. Beautiful because it is a new form of liberation. It brings a new joy because we are no longer alone. We are close even if we are far away from the other. Dangerous because letting down our inner barriers means that we can be easily hurt. This communion 
makes us vulnerable. God is present in this liberating communion. That is why John the Evangelist writes in his letter, Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God, and whoever loves is born of God and knows God. There is a seventh and final aspect of love, the most crucial of all in our equation, and that is forgiveness. In order for Claudia to begin her journey out of chaos, she needed a constant experience of unconditional love. But no human being could respond fully to that need. Sometimes fatigue or any one of a number of things could make the assistants respond with irritation or anger towards Claudia. This would wound her fragile heart. The bonding between people in communion implies that we forgive each other and that we ask each other for forgiveness. In order for Claudia to grow peacefully towards womanhood, she needed to gradually accept not only her physical blindness, but also her inner depression and anger, the scars, even open wounds that flowed from her experience of rejection and lack of love and understanding during the years in the asylum. It was important that Claudia discover her shadow areas, even if she could not name them, and that she learned that it was acceptable not to be perfect. It was for Nadine to show that we are all subject to a higher, more profound law, one that is hidden in the heart of every human being, to reveal that life is all about growth, and that it is possible for each one of us to evolve out of darkness and chaos into light and into a new order of love. Claudia's growth was subject then to Nadine's growth. How could Nadine accept Claudia in all her chaos or madness if Nadine refused to accept the chaotic aspects and shadow areas in her own life? How could she trust in Claudia's growth if she did not trust in her own growth? In the case of Claudia, there was a place where much of this spiritual struggle and growth took place. It was the place I call prayer. For most people, prayer necessitates stepping back from the pains and joys of daily life together. We need the stepping back, particularly from all that is difficult or conflict-ridden, taking for ourselves a certain distance in order to look at our problems not just from our own self-centered perspective, but from the perspective of the vision we are seeking together. That vision is to create a place of love and belonging. Prayer is then a time to let light flow into our lives, to literally enlighten each day. Our daily life is filled with so much to do, so many things to do and so little time. We need space to reread the day, as it were. We need time to listen to the inner voice of hope, calling us back to the essentials of love, essentials that we may have forgotten because of busyness and selfishness. To pray, then, is more about listening than talking. To pray is to be centered in love. It is to let what is deepest within us come to the surface. For me, it is all that and more. Prayer can also be a meeting with one who loves me and who loves us all and who is calling us forth to greater love and compassion. Prayer is resting in the quiet, gentle presence of God. Every evening the community in Honduras would gather together to pray, a simple prayer of trust and of love, calling the Spirit of God on each person. Claudia entered freely and easily into this time of prayer, 
opening her heart to God. At prayer before God, Nadine, Claudia and each one in the community were on an equal footing. Each one could ask for forgiveness for the hardness of their heart. Each could give thanks for the love and the life they experience. Each could ask for the strength to die to the power of ego in order to love more. As Claudia began to trust that she was loved not only by Nadine but also by God, it became easier for her to love herself, easier for her to believe that she could grow in love and service and that she too could give life to others. Thus she gradually discovered a meaning to her life. She too had come from God, a God of love, and was going to the God of love. The journey through life becomes meaningful through love. Loneliness seems to be an essentially human experience. Loneliness is not just about being alone. Loneliness is not the same thing as solitude. We can be alone and yet happy because we know that we are part of a family, a community, even the universe itself. True loneliness is a feeling of not being part of anything, of being cut off. It is a feeling of being unworthy, of not being able to cope before all the forces of the universe that seem to work against us. Loneliness is a feeling of being guilty. Of what? Of existing? Of being judged? By whom? We do not know. Loneliness is a taste of death. Many people engulfed in chaos today were conceived and born in chaos. They have known little else but abuse and hate. Since they had never received love, they remain unable to give love. As they were engulfed in chaos at an early age, so now they can only transmit chaos. Love, like fear and hate, is communicated from generation to generation. Does that mean that chaos is inevitable? That the world's pain and hatred are all caused by parents' inability to give their children unconditional love at all times? Are we all more or less predisposed to oppression and conflict and thus to chaos? Jean-Paul Sartre said that love is only an illusion. Was he right? My belief and my experience has shown me that there is a way out. It is the subject of these lectures. But this way out implies that we all discover our fundamental beauty as human beings, as well as our capacity to give life and to receive it from others. So much of what I have said in this lecture is about the individual and what the individual can do. But what about the larger picture? Is there a political and social solution? What sort of society do we want? There are for me a few principles a society that encourages us to break open the shell of selfishness and self-centeredness contains within itself the seeds for a society where people are honest, truthful and loving. A society can only function well if those within are concerned, not only with their own needs or the needs of those who immediately surround them, but by the needs of all, that is to say, by the common good and the family of nations. Each one of us, I believe, is on a journey towards this openness. Growth towards openness means dialogue, listening to others, particularly to those who say things we don't like to hear, speaking together about our mutual needs and how we might grow to new things. Once we open up and become concerned about each other, start sharing with each other, then a society can take form that will resemble a good society.
And this is what my next lecture is about, belonging, the essential need we have to share with others. The human heart is a place of freedom. We can be obliged to follow the law, but not to love. Our society grows in justice and peace as we allow energies of love and concern for all to rise up in ourselves. On Ideas Tonight, you've been listening to Episode 1 of Becoming Human, the 1998 Massey Lectures, presented by Jean Vanier. Episode 2 will be broadcast tomorrow night on Ideas. Becoming Human is available as a book and as a set of audio cassettes. The book is published by House of Anansi and can be purchased in bookstores and by mail order from Ideas. The five audio cassettes of the programs are also available. The cost is $21 for the book, $53 for the five cassettes, shipping and taxes included. That's $21 for the book, $53 for the five cassettes. Books and cassettes can be ordered from Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6, or by phone 416-205-6010, and email ideas at toronto.cbc.ca. Becoming Human was produced by Philip Coulter and recorded by Dave Field. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. And stay tuned to CBC Radio 1 for the hourly news, followed by the arts today and between the covers. Thank you.